My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Mmm, ooh, guys, you have great questions. Again, who in the hell writes these questions? I know you do, but my God, these are great. Um, wow. Uh, I thought this was going to be an easy question. Usually you get the last question. It's like, just take it home. Um, that is a really good question. So, Hello and welcome to Tiny Giants, the creator economy show where the focus is on career over celebrity. This is the show where I reach past social media stardom to focus on the careers and market trends that make the creator economy just that, an economy. We do this by highlighting and uplifting niche-specific creators that the uninitiated doesn't necessarily have a concept of or full appreciation for, or as we like to call them, tiny giants. You ready? Let's go. Salutations and welcome. I am your host, T. Adela, your favorite former 400 pounder getting you fit on all things creator economy. So today is Tuesday, which means that I'm flying solo today. No guests, just me, just you and me. Where we get to chop it up and I just get to speak to you directly. You know what I'm saying? Not filter through someone else, which has its place. We do that on Thursdays, but Tuesdays is just us. So how today's episode is going to flow is going to be four segments. The first, I'm going to talk about an article, news, stat, or something pertaining to the creator economy that you should know about. And I'll discuss on it, wax poetic a little bit, pontificate a little bit. And then we follow that up with our MarTech moment, where I discuss a piece of marketing technology that would benefit anyone in the creator economy. Then we take a short break to pay them bills because child support don't pay itself. We are ad supported. So I thank you in advance for bearing through that with me. And because we're part of the Marketing Podcast Network, of course, we would not bore or regale you with anything that wouldn't also benefit you. So, you know, if it would benefit you, show the sponsor some love. And then after the commercial break, we do our Creators Crushing It segment where I hop on over to YouTube or some other platform where I do a high level analysis of a creator who is doing big things in small or not so small niches. And then we finish it all off with a parental perspective. You ready? Let's go. So for today's discussion, I'm going to be pulling some excerpts from an article on Search Engine Journal by Matt G. Sutherland titled Google EEAT, How to Demonstrate Firsthand Experience. And the subtitle is Google's Updated Search Rater Guidelines Offer Insight into How a Content Creator's Firsthand Experience is Evaluated. 
And this is kind of a big deal. This is kind of a big deal. Anytime Google makes an update to its algorithm, anyone in the digital economy, which of course includes creators, needs to take note, right? So this article is relatively recent, not even a month old as of this recording. I'm recording this in January of 2023. And this article is from December 15th of 2022. So just about, you know, a few weeks old as of recording, not a month old yet. And before I jump into the article, I need to do a a brief history, a brief high level, quick, dirty history of Google and how Google works, right? So Google was founded in 1998, which for context was the year I started high school. (laughs) So my freshman year of high school, 1998 was the same around the same time that Google was founded in September of 1998. And so at a high, high level, Google is a search engine. And I'm going to assume that you know what a search engine is and how it functions is it matches search terms or queries to keywords, right? So the search term or the query is what you pop into Google. That's what you're actually seeking information about. And then what Google does is it matches the search term or the query to the keyword, Google crawls the internet and it brings back results for content that matches the query, right? So Google is just one big matching service. On the one hand, you have the searcher. And on the other hand, you have the publisher or the content creator. And when people are looking for things, they go to Google primarily to find the information that they are seeking. And so if you go all the way back to circa 1998, Um, Google's algorithm was very unrefined by today's standard, very basic and largely keyword driven. And this, of course, led to some unethical behavior and people basically trying to gain the system. So there's a term that I'm going to say once just for context and foundation that I'm not going to say it again because it's racist. And I'll explain why there's a term called black hat SEO. So black hat SEO or black hat tactics, because black hat applies broader than just SEO applies to all sort of business practices is any practice where you're sort of trying to game the system and cheat where you're not playing above board. And it's racist as the day is long. And we need to stop saying that because if something is unethical, just say that. You can say that the behavior is unethical. You don't have to assign a color to it, but then to assign a color, which is also synonymous with a group of people, i.e. black folks, as racist as the day is long. We see this all over the place in society. Everything good is white. Everything bad is black. But I digress. This is not a DEI or, or, or racial sensitivity training. I'm just saying that on my show, I don't really use the term. I'm very intentional about saying if something is unethical, I'll just say it's unethical. I'm not going to use the term black hat or white hat because there's nothing inherently bad about being black and there's nothing inherently good about being white. So we should not assign colors to those attributes. But moving on. So you had a bunch of unethical behavior like keyword stuffing, masking, link farms, all that sort of stuff, which in essence were designed to trick the algorithm into serving up otherwise not good quality content. But because it spoke to the machine, that's what, you know, 
the unethical players were trying to manipulate. And so Google made a series of updates that essentially tried to stay one step ahead of the unethical players, right? A host of algorithm updates, Penguin, Panda, and I'm not going to go into all of that deep, deep SEO history, but just know that at a high level, you have people who try to game Google system and then Google does its level best to stay ahead of those folks, right? And then fast forward from circa 1998 to circa 2016, when everyone in the United States swallowed a very bitter pill around the 2016 U.S. presidential election when fake news and misinformation took center stage. Right. And just to, again, define some terms when I say fake news and misinformation or disinformation, I'm not talking about alternative viewpoints on underlying factual events, right? Because perception is, is, is very subjective. Two people can experience the same thing, but have two very, very different perceptions. I'm not talking about that. When I say fake news, I'm talking about fairy tales. Like there's no factual basis in reality. These stories are 100% fabricated. However, they're packaged and prostituted in such a way, whereas they are presented as facts and they're not. And it's done with malicious intent. So that is what I mean when I say fake news. And it's bigger than that. But just for the purposes of our conversation, I am talking about the bad actors. Now, there's also a portion of fake news and misinformation where there are well-intentioned people who just are uneducated, which I would argue is the majority of fake news and misinformation. But again, I digress. So you have fake news and misinformation crop up about 2016 and then fast forward and we had the pandemic pop off in March of 2022, where people were getting bad information, which um, had very real consequences. Same thing happened in the U.S. Uh, election. Right. So you had people electing a public official based on bad information. And then you had people who made decisions about their health based on bad information, some of whom died as a result. So I say all of that to say because of the importance of quality information that is served up on Google, because Google understands that if it does not give good search results, people will stop using Google. And so Google doesn't want that. So Google's purpose is to serve you up the highest quality search results as possible so that you come back and you keep using it. And so in response to all of the things that I talked about very briefly, and there's more to the story. Again, this is high level, quick, dirty. Google instituted what was known as EAT, which stands for expertise, authoritativeness and trust. Right. So that is the that is the criteria under which Google is going to evaluate content that it serves on its search engine based on its algorithm. It's going to evaluate the information based on expertise, authoritativeness and trust. And just recently, a few weeks ago, as of this recording, it added another E to the mix, which is experience. Now it is E-E-A-T, which is experience, expertise, authoritativeness, and trust. 
And out of these four criteria, trust is the most important. Google is trying to make sure that the content it serves up on its search engine is fundamentally trustworthy. And there's an excerpt from the uh, post that I'll read, which says, quote, Consider the extent to which the content creator has the necessary firsthand or life experience for the topic. Many types of pages are trustworthy and achieve their purpose well when created by people with a wealth of personal experience. For example, which would you trust? A product review from someone who has personally used the product or a quote unquote review by someone who has not. And so now Google is algorithmically trying to solve for trust. And I think it's a step in the right direction and I'm happy to see it. However, um, based on my experiences, I can see a couple gotchas that I'm going to call out in this episode. But before we get to that, that's how we got here, right? That lays the groundwork on how we found ourselves in this space in 2023. And so Google has a search quality rater guidelines, which has multiple chapters for evaluating the quality of the content that it serves up. So an excerpt from the article, this is from chapter 4.5.2, which talks about lowest EEAT. And it says, quote, if the EEAT of a page is low enough, People cannot or should not use the MC of the page, and MC stands for main content. If a page on YMYL topics is highly inexpert, it should be considered untrustworthy and rated lowest. And just to unpack that term, YMYL stands for your money, your life. And what that means is that not all information is created equal. Right. So if we're talking about, I don't know, treasure trolls or beanie babies, like the, the stakes are relatively low. If you get a bad article or some bad information, I mean, you can just sort of charge that to the game and it's, it's not a huge, huge deal. However, if you get bad information that pertains to your money and then you proceed to make a bad investment decision and you lose your house. Or again, if you get bad information about vaccines and the pandemic, and then you make a decision that costs you your life, the stakes are much, much higher. So Google is going to scrutinize topics that talk about your money or your life more sternly than they would a post talking about treasure trolls. Diving back in, use the lowest rating if the website and content creator have an extremely negative reputation to the extent that many people will consider the web page or website untrustworthy. And so moving on, it uh, talks about, you know, chapter 5.1 on uh, lack of EEAT for the Google search quality rater guidelines. And it says it's going to downgrade you if, quote, Low quality pages often lack an appropriate level of EEAT for the topic of purpose of the page, which is, again, MC or main content. Here are some examples. The content creator lacks adequate experience, e.g. a restaurant review written by someone who has never eaten at the restaurant. 
The content creator lacks adequate expertise, e.g. an article about how to skydive written by someone with no expertise in the subject. The website or content creator is not authoritative or trustworthy source for the topic of the page, e.g. tax form downloads provided by a cooking website. And the page or website is not trustworthy for its purpose, e.g. a shopping page with minimal customer service information. So that is what is going to get you dinged for a lack of experience in Google. So that was what to avoid, what Google does not want to see. Now let's talk about what you should do. I am going to read some excerpts of, you know, what constitutes um, good EEAT. And then I'll jump on my soapbox and wax poetic and, and do all that stuff. So, and I'll link this up in the show notes so that you can read it yourself. But from chapter 7.3, where it talks about high level of EEAT says, quote, Pages with high EEAT are trustworthy or very trustworthy. Experience is valuable for almost any topic. Social media posts and forum discussions are often high quality when they involve people sharing their experience. From writing symphonies to reviewing home appliances, firsthand experience can make social media posts or discussion page high quality. And then from chapter 8.3, where it talks about very high level of EAT, very high EAT is a distinguishing factor for highest quality pages. A website or content creator who is uniquely authoritative, go to source for a topic has very high EAT. A content creator with a wealth of experience may be considered to have very high EAT for topics where experience is the primary factor in trust. A very high level of expertise can justify a very high EEAT assessment. Very high EEAT websites and content creators are the most trusted sources on the Internet for a particular topic. So that's the, the good EEAT. So, again, this is kind of a big deal. And on the whole, I do believe it is a step in the right direction. However, um, as with most things, I have concerns about an algorithm making decisions at a very high level without an appropriate amount of human intervention. Now, what I just read to you was the guidelines that the human interveners subscribe to. Right. So it's not that Google isn't on it, but something that I've observed especially in the entrepreneurship community, is that for the uninitiated, there's sort of a, a cultural divide between entrepreneurs and people with post-secondary education. Entrepreneurs tend to overvalue experience at the expense of proper pedagogy. And I'll unpack that term for those who don't know. So pedagogy is the method and practice of teaching. So in layman terms, it's the method of how teachers teach in theory and in practice. And so I'll opine on this later in a, in a different episode because I don't want us to be here for two hours. And I know I'm going to catch a lot of flack on this, and which is why I'm going to dedicate a separate episode just to this. And entrepreneurs at a high, high level, and like, yes, I know I'm painting with broad strokes, but entrepreneurs don't value formal education because they'll often say things like, how are you going to teach me something that you've never done? In other words, they're indicting the person's experience or lack thereof. And they'll say things to the effect of, I would rather have someone who actually knows, has the experience than someone who read it from a book, 
right? So the entrepreneurs don't have a lot of value or respect for book knowledge and they value um, personal experience. That's fair to an extent. However, there's an assumption in there that often goes unchallenged, which I am going to respectfully, I'm going to challenge that assumption because there's the skill and then there's the ability to teach the skill to others, which is a separate skill. Just because you know how to teach something does not mean that you are going to be competent at teaching that to others. It helps But it's not a guarantee because like most people, I have been on the receiving end of some well-meaning, otherwise competent individuals who were woefully ill-equipped at teaching. They, They just were not good. And the issue with that is that most people teach the way that they learn. And that's great if your student or trainee learns the way you learn. But that can be highly problematic if they don't interpret information and assign meaning the same way you do. And so again, I'm not going to uh, go too, too deep in that, but that is a giant non-obvious trap that I wanted to call out that I want people to be aware of, especially because one of the founding topics of this show is that 49% of Gen Z intend to pursue content creation as a career, aka they want to be professional content creators, aka entrepreneurs. And you see that a lot in books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, um, which I've read and I loved. But um, that that is the gotcha in there. That's the devil in the detail that that's the Pandora's box that not enough people talk about. Right. Because there's the skill. Then there's the ability to teach the skill to others, which is a separate skill. So just because you have experience and a wealth of experience in a certain domain does not mean that you will be competent at teaching that. But that's enough of that. That is the article from Search Engine Journal, which I will link up in the show notes about how experience is going to be a ranking factor which is another thing that Gen Z needs to take into account because, of course, you're young people. You're young. So your your life experience and work experience is going to be limited, not because you're not competent, but because you're young. So that's another thing to to take into account, which I'll talk more about in our next episode. But that's enough for the foundation. Now it's time for our MarTech moment segment. So MarTech is just an umbrella term that stands for marketing technology, and it's all of the technology used to achieve marketing objectives. So Facebook ads, Google ads, email marketing, uh, location for Foursquare, that all falls under the umbrella of MarTech. Today's MarTech moment is TubeBuddy. So TubeBuddy is a web browser extension or a browser plugin that adds a layer of tools directly on top of YouTube. It's really, really powerful. It's used by a lot of top content creators. It's like the secret weapon, right? And so it's good for uh, YouTube SEO, competitor analysis, and it's it's really, really great. So I encourage you to check it out if you're interested in content creation as a professional. And so that's today's MarTech moment is to buddy. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. 
Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Welcome back. Now it's time for our Creators Crushing It segment, where I do a high-level, quick, dirty analysis of a creator's profile and try to guesstimate how much money they make in their business. So this is supposed to be high level, quick, dirty. It's not supposed to be very in-depth and technical. Emphasis is more on the process versus the output. This is more so getting you used to the process of doing a high level analysis. But if that's the type of content that you want, let me know in the comments. Please leave a rating and review and all that good stuff. And I'll see what I can put together for you. It may be paid because my child support does not pay its Self, but either way, I'll get you taken care of. But with that being said, so we're switching it up today. Today's creator crushing it is going to center on Dr. Andrew Stapleton, who is a PhD from Australia. So prior to this, all of my creator crushing it segments have been on people with over a million subscribers. And in last week's video, I talked about how the selection of your vertical that you choose to create content around is really really important because not all niches are created equal. Some niches are just inherently small and others are just really, really big. And so depending on where your passions lie, that is another factor that you need to take into consideration if you're planning to make the plunge and be a full-time content creator. So Dr. Andrew Stapleton, again, is a PhD from Australia, and he talks about the process of becoming a PhD. He has books on PhD prep, as well as academia as a whole, academia as a profession, and how you can have a career in academia and keep your sanity. And I really enjoy his content because even though his content is specific around the Ph.D., process and the, the business side of academia, the lessons are applicable broadly. So Dr. Andy Stapleton has 88,000 subscribers, which, again, because he's talking about Ph.D. prep and academia, that niche is nowhere near as big as uh, what's the one we did before Mariah Elizabeth. So so crafting children's content, that's a huge niche. And then before that, we did Jeff Cavalier, Athlete X, exercise and fitness is a huge niche. So I don't want to give you the impression that this person is not crushing it because they are. If they weren't, they wouldn't be on the show. This person is absolutely crushing it. However, because of his niche. His niche is inherently smaller than the other creators that we've profiled, but he is still, by all standards of measure, crushing it. And so if we hop on over to the about page, we see that he has generated 5,451,587 views as of this recording, right? So again, for the uninitiated, 
YouTube will pay you three to five dollars per thousand views that you generate because they pay on a cost per mil or cost per thousand view basis. So if we take just from the thousands place over, so just this, so if we take 5,451 and, and multiply that by four, so split the difference three to five, between three to five dollars, so let's call it four. So 5,451 times four, is going to be $21,804. Again, he's been at this since 2016, so about seven years as of this recording, just shy of seven years. He probably has not quit his daytime job, or I sincerely hope he hasn't quit his day job. Or if he has, that's because he's married to someone else who works. So he has a spouse to support him. But looking at this holistically on, on everything that he has, so if we scroll down to his links, he sells ebooks. So this opens up. He has his ebook bundle. He has two books. You can get them both for about 24 bucks, but individually his uh, PhD survival is 14 bucks. And then his atomic, his ultimate, uh, what is this? The ultimate academic writing toolkit is 14 bucks. So, but you can get them both for just a, a couple of dollars less than what you, if you bought them individually. So then he has a blog, he has a newsletter, and then it goes back to his YouTube channel. So from what I can gather, this is just your typical expert funnel. So going back down here on his recommended tools, um, it looks like he's got some affiliate marketing going on. So that is his affiliate marketing code. So if I click this link and buy something from this link, he will get a percentage of the sale. So he has a few affiliate links on here. So um, as best as I can tell from looking at this, and if I go back over to his um, website, Academia Insider, this is, again, your basic expert funnel. I'm doing the same thing, like literally, I'm doing the same thing right now. So in my case, I use a combination of podcasting and YouTube, but in his case, he just uses YouTube to get people to buy his books. And then to from his books, once they join his newsletter, he has a signature course or signature series sort of offering that's a little bit more. And then from there, he tries to get consulting clients who will either pay him for PhD prep or pay him to come speak or pay him for whatever. So this one is kind of, a, a sticky, but I'll before getting into the grand total, I'll hop over to his videos. As best as I can tell, he uploads between six and 10 videos a month and his average video. Now he's been on a bit of a tear lately because this is probably a good time of year for him. I'm recording this in January of 2023. So you have a lot of new year resolutions, a lot of people trying to take the plunge. And so there's a few outliers in these latest videos that sort of muddy the waters a bit. So this one right here has 241,000 views from two weeks ago, but that's abnormal. If you, if we scroll down and look at his average views over time, his average video gets about 10,000 views. So, and again, they pay you three to $5 per thousand views. So 10,000 views at four bucks is 40 bucks. And he puts out six to the six to 10 of these a month. So on any given month, he makes between 240 and 400 bucks on his YouTube channel. So not enough to quit his job and support himself, but it's enough to, you know, it's enough 
depending on how he runs his business, it's enough to pay for his websites, hosting. It's enough to get some equipment for the production of his videos. It's enough to, you know, for his newsletter sustaining all that good stuff. So I don't want you to think that just because he doesn't have a million subscribers and he's not making a whole lot of money from his YouTube videos that it's not worth it because clearly it is. And because of this and what I know about this sort of system, because I'm on a, cause again, I do the same thing. Um, this one is going to be very, very hard to sort of peg how much his YouTube channel is worth to his business. But given the niche that he's in, which is relatively small, and given his area of expertise, um, there aren't a lot of companies or schools that could bring him in to speak, but he could do very, very well for himself. So he's by no means going to make millions at this. But <clears throat> let's say that his books and his ebooks sell pretty well. And he also sells some merch. So he's got the ebooks, he's got merch. And then let's say he gets a couple speaking gigs a quarter, right? So I'm going to do this quarterly as opposed to monthly just because of the, the the variance of this particular business model or the business model that I'm assuming he's running. Because again, because he's not fitness or selling crafts, it's not quite as straightforward in consulting. But given the fact that he's built a, a very high profile YouTube channel in a very niche specific vertical I'm going to say that if he gets because these consulting contracts can range anywhere from 10,000 to 50 or 100,000 dollars or more, depending on what he's being brought in to consult for. So there's a very, very, very wide range of consulting fees. But given the fact that he has a Ph.D. and he has the tenure and he has all that good stuff, if he gets a contract a quarter, I'm going to say his average contracts are around. $50,000. So I'm going to say that he makes about $50,000 a quarter, which is um, not quite $17,000 a month, something like that. Um, I don't, I don't, I'm doing this math in my head. So forgive me if I'm wrong, but I want to say he makes $50,000 a quarter, $200,000 a year um, from his YouTube, which is respectable. Um, he's not, he's not raking in millions like Jeff Cavalier or Mariah Elizabeth, because he doesn't have billions of views because it takes billions of views to make millions of dollars on YouTube. Whereas he only has 5,451,000 views, which is good for about 21,000 bucks over seven years, about 3000 bucks a year. So not nearly enough to sustain yourself. But again, if he gets a contract a quarter from this, then it's, it's well worth it. It makes sense. So that is our creator crushing it segment for this Tuesday. Dr. Andrew Stapleton, who does PhD career prep and talks about academia as a whole. So again, the point of picking him this week is so that you understand you don't have to go for these huge, huge niches or niches that have a bunch of competition is it is more than possible to have huge success and very specialized niches. And we have an example of that right here. So don't let the numbers fool you. He doesn't have a million or even a hundred thousand subscribers, but I can tell you because I'm familiar with the business model. He is in fact crushing it. And so from my parental perspective, experience matters. 
Experience is important. However, you devalue proper pedagogy at your own peril. Because again, there's the skill, then there's the ability to teach that skill to others, which is a separate skill. And just because you have experience does not a master teacher make. Pedagogy is what distinguishes a master teacher from just an individual with experience. And I will go into deep, deep, deep detail on that in the very next episode. Thank you so much for your time. I hope this has been a great experience for you. If you liked it, please leave me a rating, a review, share this episode with your friends, colleagues, and young people in your life who are pursuing content creation as a career. And I will see you on Thursday. Tiny Giants is an audio companion to and the first chapter of my first book, Beyond Buzzwords. Social media, mobile, and other marketing buzzwords ain't the half of it. Available on Amazon. If you enjoyed this podcast, chances are good you'll like the book too. I'm proud to say that while the book has aged, it's not dated. Sure, some examples could be freshened up, but strategically, it's as rock solid as the day it was written. Not every author can say that. I encourage you to pick it up and leave me a rating and review. It really helps. I have like one rating on that book from my mom because she loves me. And I'm positive that you'll love it too. Head on over to tinygiants.tech for more episodes and whatever else I have going on. While you're there, leave me a voicemail with your question, comment, or feedback for improvement. I may play that voice recording on a future episode as I answer your question or address your concern. If you, your company, or school needs help with college, career, and creator readiness strategy or to book me to speak, drop me a line at t at tinygiants.tech. If you or someone you know is doing big things in small or not so small niches, or as we like to call them, tiny giants, and they will make a great guest for the show, email me at t at tinygiants.tech. Thanks for listening. And remember, you get big by going small, but to prioritize career over celebrity. But no matter what you choose, know that I'm rooting for you. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.